Well, it's good to be back. I uh, want to thank you for uh, giving me some uh, time of sabbatical. Um, you know, I've spent the first 10 days in uh, Turkey with Chris McGuffey and Blake, Blake Jennings, and uh, then I came back. I was in College Station the rest of the time, and I will admit, it was very refreshing for me, not so much so uh, for my family who <laughs> stayed behind, but I did promise them in a week we'll uh, take some family vacation so everyone can join in in the sabbatical uh, experience. I, I will also admit that I kind of experienced some re-entry burns. I, um, I came up here yesterday to work on the message, and I always uh, walk through the building and pray, and as I was walking through the building and praying for our church, something just didn't really feel right. In particular, it was really, really hot. And I thought, hmm, I don't think the air conditioning's working right. And I called Jerry, and he said, well, you know, we usually leave it high during the weekends. I go, you know, but it just doesn't feel right, Jerry. So Jerry came up, and sure enough, the air conditioning was broken <laughs> again. And so he called the AC repair guy and said, well, it's just a $100 part, but I don't know if we've got it here in town. But they did, you can tell. So they found the $100 part, came in, fixed it. It wasn't a $100,000 repair like last year, right? So... I was praising the Lord, right? Dodged a bullet. And then I came in this morning. I always come in early, kind of review and pray. And I was sitting in my office, working on my computer, got my Bible there, thinking, praying, and boom, the lights went out, which some of you probably experienced at your own homes as well. Electricity went out. It was out here at Anderson. It was out at Southwood. It was not out across the street in the college auditorium. So we were almost worshiping there this morning. <laughs> But then the electricity came back on. It's like, okay, dodge another bullet. Welcome back. It always seems to happen to me <laughs> that the air conditioning goes out in the middle of the summer. So uh, uh, why Turkey? Why did I choose Turkey for the first part of my sabbatical? A lot of you asked me that before I left. Well, I, I wanted to, to uh, kind of put the, set the context for sabbatical for you. Uh, Turkey is what is known as the Roman province of Asia in the Bible. We call it Asia Minor. It is at uh, the center of New Testament revelation. Most of Paul's church planning activities took place in Turkey or Asia Minor, that is, or Greece. Uh, he did make it over to Rome, into Italy, but most of his time planting churches, most of the churches that he planted were in Turkey or Greece. And so Turkey and Greece figure prominently into all of the epistles, into the book of Revelation, and into the book of Acts, which we'll be studying in the fall. So I got a lot of good background information about the cities and the region and the history of Asia Minor or Turkey. And I thought I'd give you just a couple of visual highlights before we get into the book of Proverbs. So in the city of Pergamum, uh, we got to see one of the most impressive theaters. It's the steepest theater in this part of the world. Seats about 10,000 people, so almost as many people as Reed Arena. Very impressive. There's also a temple there to Trajan that has been uh, well excavated. It's a beautiful temple there. And our own Blake Jennings Tending to be the Emperor Trajan at this point in time, giving orders to the rest of us. Uh, in Laodicea, we were the only tourists, or just about, there were about two other people touring at this point in time, so we got to see this entire site, which is, is an ongoing excavation site, a beautiful site. It's a typical Roman road, and underneath this road, you can still see the, the drainage areas. Really impressive structure. To give you a sense of what they have done in just the past few years, uh, this is the same road as this. And so just a few years ago, you would have seen the roadway looking like that in Laodicea, but now 
they have excavated this site and they're continuing to excavate. There are areas that we couldn't go into, but a very impressive site in Laodicea. Ephesus is the most impressive site, the best excavated site. As you're driving into Ephesus, this is one of the Roman aqueducts. And let me just say, the Romans were amazing engineers. They could have taught at Texas A&M University College of Engineering. I mean, the stuff that they built is still standing. This aqueduct is it's phenomenal. They also had, you could look up in the mountains and you could see uh, where terracotta pipes had been exposed that also brought not just, they had cold water coming in, they also had hot water coming in and they used these terracotta pipes to create a pressure system uh, and vacuum. I mean, it was just amazing. Right, so Ephesus was really impressive. This is the main street going into the city of Ephesus. We were not the only tourists in Ephesus. Uh, it gets really, really crowded there. Fortunately, it's early in, it was early in the season when we went. So, you know, there were a few hundred people, but it wasn't too bad. Uh, this is the main street going down. Uh, I've got some other pictures that I'll bring in as we study the book of Acts that really, I think, kind of help illuminate and visualize what's going on in the city of Ephesus. A lot of mosaics, beautiful mosaics that have been uncovered, and then also a mosaic of a duck. <laughs> I have no idea why that particular, I don't know if there's any historical significance, but it was pretty. A really extensive public restroom facility from the first century that I had to get a picture of and actually snuck in and got my picture taken on the public facility. <laughs> uh, and then a great theater one of the largest theaters in this part of the world and a theater that figures again prominently into the book of Acts and the history of what went on in the New Testament in Ephesus. So what did we see? We saw ruins. If I can summarize it in one thing, we saw things that were broken. We saw things that that used to be really impressive but now are mostly lying in ruins unless someone has taken the time to stack the rocks back on top of one another. And I will tell you, I like looking at ruins. I'm, I'm kind of funny that way. But I, I don't like what the ruins represent. Because in Turkey, what the ruins represent is the ruin of the church. Okay? The church is almost completely gone in the country of Turkey. It's a country of 75 million people. And of the 75 million people, there are about 160,000 People who consider themselves Christians, that's 0.21%. Of those 160,000 believers in Turkey, there are only 7,000 that would call themselves evangelical believers. In other words, 7,000 people out of a country of 70 million who worship like we worship. I mean, the church is almost completely gone. There are people there who are doing great work. There are missionaries there who are on campuses and they're doing church planning. They're doing great work, but where once there was uh, this blaze, this inferno of the Spirit's work in and through the church in this country, now it's just, a, it's just a tiny spark. Let me illustrate. This is the church, uh, Hagia Sophia, the Church of Holy Wisdom. It's one of the most impressive churches in the 4th and 5th, 6th century, I think it was built. Um, then it became a mosque, And now it's just a museum. Turkey is a country of uh, Muslims and materialism. This is a little bit dark. It's a little difficult for you to see, but um, these two young women are veiled. You can see just their eyes, but the woman in the front uh, can see the world through her iPhone that she's texting on. And I kind of snuck by her and got a picture. But I thought, what a great contrast 
of the Muslim world and the materialistic world. And that's what you see in Turkey. 99% Muslim, uh, but most of the women don't veil. Some do. You have this strange mixture. You have tourists coming in from Iran, completely veiled. In Iraq, you'll see men walking with several of their wives behind them in an entourage of children. And then you'll see completely uh, secularized people who call themselves Muslim, but they never pray. But they're not, they're not Christian. I will say, though, the people were, that we ran into were pretty open to dialogue, pretty open to conversation. So, uh, you know, it really stirred in us uh, a desire to, uh, once again, let's, let's see that region reach. In fact, that's one of the things that uh, Chris McGuffey and I went a few days early to talk to some folks who were doing church planning work there, just to explore. Is there an, an opportunity for us maybe to go back and look in this part of the world about doing some additional work? But right now, there's not much going. The church is uh, struggling there. There are quite a few missionaries, but the church is struggling. They're open to dialogue, but there's not a great uh, revival taking place yet in this country. What happened? What happened where you had uh, a country that was, in a sense, the, the very heart of Christianity and the church is now really struggling? Book of Revelation, Jesus spoke to the church in Ephesus, one of the churches there in Asia Minor in Turkey, one of the, the major churches in Asia Minor. And he said this, I have this against you that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Jesus said, here's the problem. There are so many wonderful things happening in your church in Ephesus, but you have left your first love. That is, you have left me. I'm no longer your greatest passion and your greatest desire. And so you you need to turn from that and turn back to me and love me first in your life. Put me first in your life. And if you don't, I'm going to remove the lampstand. What's the lampstand? Well, you know, in the book of Revelation, there's lots of imagery that's hard to understand, but then there's some imagery that Jesus says, well, this is what this means. And the lampstand, Jesus says, is the church. The lampstand is the church. It represents uh, the, the power and the passion, the presence of the spirit in the church. And he says, if you don't love me most, then your church will disintegrate and it will die. And there is no vibrant church in the city of Ephesus today. What, what happened specifically? Well, apparently they didn't heed the warning, right? Apparently they didn't heed the warning. And church, that warning applies to us as well, right? If we don't love Jesus most, right now there's a vibrant, dynamic community worshiping here at Grace Bible Church, worshiping in the Bryan College Station community, even throughout the United States. But if we don't love Jesus first, And we're at risk and we're vulnerable. And you know, our adversary wants to destroy us and we're foolish not to keep that in mind. It's only pride that makes us say, no, we got it, God. All is good. We're strong. We're healthy. We can manage. That's pride. And pride goes before the fall, right? Whether that's the church as a group of believers or us individually, beware of pride. The antidote to pride is humility. It's humility. Humility is a hard sell in our culture today. Really, we exalt pride, don't we, in our culture? Humility is a hard sell. In fact, uh, my good friend Matt Morton drafted a book on humility 
a couple of years ago and he pitched it to a publisher and the publisher said, sorry, we can't sell a book on humility. <laughs> if you want to reframe that as kind of a self-help topic about how to make yourself a better person, then maybe we'll pick up your book and work on that. But we can't sell humility. A generation ago, Andrew Murray in the 1800s wrote a book on humility and it was a bestseller. So we're going to follow the path of Andrew Murray. I'm going to actually quote to you uh, several times from Andrew Murray's book this morning. He said this, The root of all virtue and grace of all faith and acceptable worship is that we know that we have nothing but what we receive and we bow in deepest humility to wait upon God for it. So this morning we're going to talk about pride and humility from the book of Proverbs. I want you to turn to Proverbs with me. Chapter 11 and verse 2. Proverbs chapter 11 verse 2. We'll look first at the problem of pride. Proverbs 11 verse 2. When pride comes, then comes dishonor. But with the humble is wisdom. When pride comes, then comes dishonor, but with the humble is wisdom. What's the problem of pride? The problem of pride is that we are all infected with it. Again, quoting from Andrew Murray, he said, There's nothing so natural to us, nothing so insidious and hidden from our sight, nothing so difficult and dangerous as pride. Notice again, there's nothing so natural to us. It's woven into us to be proud. God created, he didn't create us first, he actually created the angelic realm first. And the greatest and most powerful and beautiful angel that he created was named Lucifer. Lucifer was not content with being under the authority of God and being just a beautiful and intelligent and powerful created being. He wanted to be like God. And because of his pride, he fell. And in his fall, he determined that he would take others with him. And so... As men and women were created, he entered into the garden and he said, Eve, you don't have to be under God. You can be like God. In fact, the reason God has said don't take that fruit is because he doesn't want you to be like him. Eve, you can be your own God and Adam can be a God with you. It was pride. And so that has been woven into the very fabric of human nature from our inception. Pride. What is pride? Interestingly, in both Hebrew and in Greek, there are multiple words for pride. All of them carry the same connotation. Literally, it is to lift something up or to exalt it, to swell, to roar, or to boast. Something that is proud was literally something that was high and lifted up. That is pride. Lifting up ourselves and bringing God down. That's pride. Lifting up ourselves and bringing God down. So, If pride goes before the fall and pride is a destructive thing, why do we give in to it? What's the source of pride? Well, there are several sources. One is just simply foolishness, ignorance. We just don't get it. We don't understand our proper place in relationship to God. It says in Psalm chapter 14, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And if there is no God, then I can be God. I can take his place. Sometimes it's foolishness or ignorance. Sometimes it's anger. People who are angry and fighting all the time are usually prideful people because they're not getting what they want and so they go out in their own strength and their own ingenuity to get it or to take it. Proverbs 13.10, through insolence, 
It's another word for arrogance or pride in Hebrew. Comes nothing but strife. Proud people are fighting people. The flip side of anger is fear and insecurity. What if I'm not strong enough, fast enough, smart enough, good enough? That creates insecurity within us. Alan Richardson wrote a great commentary on the book of Genesis, and specifically as he was addressing Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, he said this, The hatred of anonymity drives men to give the honor and the glory to themselves which properly belong to the name of God. That is, fear drives them to take what rightly belongs to God, to bring God down and to lift themselves up. What is the source? What drives us? Sometimes it's foolishness or ignorance. Sometimes it's anger. Sometimes it's fear or insecurity. But whatever the source, the result is still the same and God calls pride an abomination in the book of Hebrews, in the book of Proverbs. An abomination is literally something that's false worship. That is the worship of self, the exaltation of self, self and bringing God down. Pride is an abomination and God obviously can't allow that to stand. So how do we know? Hey, what are the warning signs or the symptoms that we may be giving in to pride? Let me give you a few. When we are not teachable, we're proud. Because humble people are teachable people. Proud people are not teachable. Proverbs 10. He is on the path of life who heeds instruction, but he who ignores reproof goes astray. The humble person, the wise person, listens to instruction. The proud person does not. When we're always in conflict, when we're always in conflict, we're always fighting, we're always grasping rather than giving, it's a symptom that we're giving in to pride. Proverbs twenty-eight twenty-five: an arrogant man stirs up strife, trouble surrounds him. Because he's in fear that he doesn't have enough and he has to take. That's pride. When we are not praising, but we are boasting. When we're not lifting up God or lifting up the people around us, it's a symptom of pride, not humility. Proverbs 21, proud, haughty, scoffer are his names who acts with insolent pride. When we are easily offended, I won't talk about this very long, (laughs) but if you know someone or you are someone who always gets his or her feelings hurt, that's simply pride. People owe me something. People should treat me a certain way. People should respect me. People should honor me. What in the world is that clerk taking a phone call for when I'm standing here in line, a live person? That makes me angry. That's pride. Okay, we'll move on. When we forget to pray. When we forget to pray, that's evidence that we think we can manage life on our own. And you know what? We just can't. Proud people are independent people. Proud people are self-sufficient people. Humble people are dependent people. Dependent upon God. And God can't allow this to stand. Why? Because pride is foolishness. And pride is destructive for us, men and women. Pride is not good for us. And so God is always in the process of moving us from pride to humility. Because humility is a good place. It's a wise place. It's a true place. It's a safe place. And in fact, someday there will be this great reversal of fortunes where God will take the proud and he'll bring them low and he'll take the low and he'll move them high. 
The Lord describes that in Ezekiel chapter 17. He says, all the trees of the field will know that I am the Lord. I bring down the high tree, exalt the low tree, dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord, I have spoken and I will perform it. It's obviously a metaphor. Why does he choose trees? Because trees are something that can grow up and grow high and they can be beautiful and glorious and grab attention for themselves. So those who grow up high and they grab attention for themselves and praise and honor, those are the proud trees and I'll bring them low. But those that are low and they're dry and they're thirsty, those are the ones I will raise up. Jesus said it very directly. He said, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And so we choose humility. We choose humility. What is the prize of humility? Would you turn back to Proverbs 11, verse 2 again, if you're not there. If pride is something that is lifted up, humility is something that is laid low. Literally, the word means to crouch or bow down or to be low. Prize of humility, Peter talks about. First Peter, he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Why? So that he may exalt you at the proper time. So that God may exalt you rather than you exalting yourself. It's exaltation from God. That's the prize of humility. To put myself low so that God can exalt me when it is proper. Read with me again. Chapter 11, verse 2. He says, when pride comes, then comes dishonor. But with the humble is wisdom. That exaltation that we receive from God is in fact wisdom. Do you see the connection with the proud is dishonor, but with the humble, there is wisdom. Wisdom is the point of the book of Proverbs. And how do you get wisdom? According to the book of Proverbs, you humble yourself. Humility and wisdom go hand in hand. Why? Because humility is seeing things as they actually are. It is a proper understanding of who God is and who I am in light of who God is. And in light of who God is and who I am in light of who he is, I see others as they are properly. That is wisdom. And the root of that wisdom is humility. Andrew Murray said, humility is simply acknowledging the truth of our position as human beings and yielding to God his proper place. I love that. Such a simple statement. So true. Humility is simply acknowledging the truth of our position as human beings and yielding to God his proper rightful place. In the book of Job, you don't need to turn there with me. I'll read this to you briefly. Job chapter 42. Remember Job has wrestled with God. He's struggled with God. He's been frustrated with God because in Job's worldview, Righteous people always do well and prosper, right? And the unrighteous are punished. But it seems that Job has been punished and everything's been taken from him, but he searches his heart and he can't find any unrighteousness in himself. And so he's battling with God and he's arguing with God and he's struggling with God. And then God steps in and says, let me tell you about you and let me tell you about me. Job, I'm going to ask you a few questions. They're rhetorical. Don't answer, (laughs) right? Were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? No, you were not. Can you go to the depths of the earth? Can you reach up into the highest of heaven? Do you see the calves that are born? No, no one sees those. I I took care of all that. All that is created, my hand made, my hand manages. I get all of that. And he just keeps just hammering away at Job and revealing his own greatness and Job's true humble place. 
at the end of this whole conversation that is very one-sided, says, then Job answered the Lord and he said, and Job answers very briefly, which is very wise, right? He says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? He's talking about himself. He says, I'm, I'm speaking a lot of stuff, but I don't know anything. I get it. Therefore, I've declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Here now, and I will speak, I will ask you, you instruct me, Lord. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. God, you're great. I'm not, and that's okay. Job sees God as God is, and it changes Job's perspective completely on himself. I want you to turn with me to the book of Psalms. Psalm chapter 138 and verse 4. Psalm 138 verse 4. It says, All the kings of the earth will give thanks to you, O Lord, when they have heard the words of your mouth. And they will sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. Now listen, for though the Lord is exalted, yet he regards the lowly, but the haughty or the proud he knows from afar. You see the significance of that? Do you want intimacy with God? Do you want to know God deeply? Then go low. Those who lift themselves up, the psalmist says, God knows them from afar. But those who are lowly and humble in spirit, he draws them close and they know him well. The end of Isaiah, Isaiah is discussing uh, the, the temple that will be rebuilt. And the Lord intervenes and he says, where then is a house that you could build for me? Where's a place that I might find rest? Because really, my hand made all of these things. Everything that you see that has come into being, I built all of this. So I'm not impressed with temple builders, right? I'm not impressed that you can gather the marble that I made and overlay it with the gold that I made with the hands that I gave you. That doesn't impress me. But to this one I will look. To him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. To the prize of humility is wisdom. Wisdom is seeing God as he is. Wisdom is seeing ourselves in relationship to God as he is. And when we see that, God can open himself up to us and we can know God more deeply and more fully. It is those who are humble who have the richest and deepest relationship with God. And when we see God as he is and then we see ourselves in relationship to him, we can begin to see others as they are. We are all sinners saved by grace. We stop regarding ourselves as here and others as here, but we see ourselves all humble before the cross of Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus told a wonderful parable about this. So there were two men who went up into the temple to pray. The first man lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, God, you're so lucky to have me, right? Fortunate, fortunate are you. And I'm so thankful that I'm not like other men. Particularly, look at this sinful man over here. You know, I, I pay my tithes, I pray, I do this, I do, I do, I do. I'm, I am such a great, you're so fortunate to have me on the team. God and then another man steps forward, and he won't even lift up his eyes to heaven. Instead, he beats his breast. He says, God, be merciful to me. I'm just a sinner. Jesus asks questions. He says, which man do you think went to his home justified? The man who justified himself 
or the man who fell before the mercy of God. He says, that was the man, the man who was humble. The man who was humble. So wisdom is seeing things as they actually are. And the pathway to such wisdom is humility, putting ourselves low before God. We see God as he is. He's great. We're not. We're low, but we're loved, right? And we're actually the greatest of all creatures that God has ever made. We're made in the image of God. And so he has crowned us with glory and honor, but it's his glory and honor with which he has crowned us. We're great because God is great and he's made us in his image. When we see ourselves properly in relationship to God, then we can reach out in love to one another, not in anger or in fear because we don't need to take anything from anyone else because God has given us all that we need. And so we can love, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, Love is not proud. Love is not arrogant. Love gives and it gives and it gives. Because love has received everything it needs from God. And it can regard others as they are. All sinners in need of the grace of God. Proverbs chapter 29 verse 23. A man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. Literally, a humble spirit will obtain glory. Glory, the possession of God, the weightiness of God. Humble people become deep wells that others can go to draw from because they're rich in their relationship with God. So we want humility, right? We want humility. We want to buy that book. We want to read that book and we want to apply that book. Matt, get busy on that book. We want it. Would the men go to the back, please, and uh, get us prepared for communion? As men prepare for communion, I want to make uh, some applications. Let's get really specific. Uh, choose humility. Okay? That's our application for today. Choose humility. Um, how do we do that? Well, an observation. James chapter 4, verse 10, it says, Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Okay, humble yourselves. Or in First Peter, he says, uh, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Let's have our grammatical moment. That verb is reflexive. It means this is something that you do to yourself or for yourself. This is a choice you can make and should make. You can humble yourself. You can choose to put yourself low before God and others. Humility is a choice. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you at the proper time. How do we do that? How do we do that? I would say first, we start at the cross. Hey, we start at the cross. The cross is humbling for all of us because at the cross we realize we don't bring anything to justify ourselves before God. We are all in need of the perfect work of Jesus Christ. And so we come low before the cross and we say, God, we're not bringing you anything. We are receiving forgiveness of sins. We are receiving eternal life. We are coming as those who who are asking, who are begging, and who are needful, not those who are great and are offering you something. That is the essence of the gospel. Jesus did it all on the cross, and we're the recipients of what Jesus accomplished for us. That's very humbling. So the gospel is, first and foremost, I would say, a very humbling thing. Another quote for you from Andrew Murray. He said, humility is the one indispensable condition of a true relationship with Jesus. Because Christianity is not about religion that is performing for God. It is receiving what God has performed for us in Jesus Christ. That is the starting point. And perhaps you're here this morning and you never have made that specific decision to say, God, I come before you in humility and I receive what Jesus did for me. 
It's not enough to know about Jesus and about what God has done through Jesus. What you must do at some point is humble yourself before him in the quietness of your heart. Reach out and say, God, thank you. Thank you that you have given me Jesus. The moment that you do, he lifts you up to eternal life. He removes the debt of your sin and he gives you life that lasts forever. Start at the cross. And then I would argue, stay at the cross. Stay at the cross. Because this cross is an illustration of the way that Jesus lived his entire life. Matthew chapter 10, verse 45 says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And he said, as I have done for you and the example you've seen in me, I want you to go and do the same for others. I'm God in human flesh, but I didn't come to be served by my creatures. I came to serve. And really, that's the essence of working out true humility. It's not really since just putting ourselves down. It's lifting God up. It's exalting God, and it's exalting and lifting up the people around us to God. It's service. It's serving secretly. It's serving quietly. It's serving when no one prays. It's responding in grace when someone treats you like a servant because you are a servant, because you're following the pattern of Jesus Christ. So as the men come forward to service, what I want you to do is just take a few moments to think about and meditate upon the example of Jesus Christ who is God, and yet he gave himself. And in giving himself, we have eternal life. Hey, we're going to wait till all of us are served, uh, and we'll take the elements together. So just take a few moments quietly before the Lord to meditate upon the sacrifice and the humility of Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 2. Apostle Paul wrote, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's take the bread together. Let's receive the cup together. Jesus, we thank you for your body broken for us. We thank you for your blood spilled out for us. We thank you for uh, your humility that you're willing to take on human flesh, that you were willing to sacrifice and suffer in the flesh so that the debt of our sin could be removed so that we could have eternal life. Thank you. We praise you and pray, Father, that you strengthen us to follow the example of your son, Jesus. Father, we acknowledge that you are great. You alone are great. We humbly come before you. We thank you that you have lifted us up through the work of your son, Jesus Christ. Not that we bring anything to you that merits your love, but you have chosen 
out of your grace and kindness to shower your love upon us. And so we thank you for that. We praise you. This morning, if you uh, made a decision to follow Jesus, maybe for the first time, you'd like to talk to someone about that and maybe get some help on what would be the next steps in your relationship with God. We'll have some couples down front that you can come and talk to. Or maybe you would just like someone to pray for you and with you about some things that are going on in your life. You're going to find out some more information about how to get plugged in the church. Some couples down here out front to to be with you, uh, to pray with you, uh, help you kind of take some of those next steps in your spiritual life. Uh, I encourage you, I exhort you, don't walk out of here without letting God touch your heart and your mind and um, move you closer toward him. Father, again, I praise you and I thank you that you come after us and you chase us because you love us. We worship you through your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.